a seat. Thank you so much for joining us on this blizzardy, wintry Montana morning. Uh, I think as I heard Marcus say, maybe we're finally getting some winter, I don't know, but uh, I was telling Tyler this, this morning as they recently moved up here from Texas, I was like, take heart because at least we're in the second week of February and March is near, so maybe winter's about over even if you're experiencing your first dose of it. Uh, but we're just glad you guys are here. Hey, I want to say this. If, if you're here this morning and you're just in a place where you just need God to just touch you and just show himself real, I believe that we're going to see him do that this morning. See, the text that we're going to study is literally dripping with the gospel. It's literally showcasing the heart of God as he runs after the hurting, as he runs after the hopeless, and those that have no hope, he wants to offer it. It's amazing. And that's part of the reason, as Jenna has said, by the way, Jenna, she would never say this, she's the executive director of Childbridge, so there was no one better to make this announcement on what Childbridge is than her. So she's humble, but that's who she is. Uh, just grateful for you, Jenna, and all that you do for the church. Um, yeah, and so the, the, the thing with the One Initiative is this, that we believe that God just revealed his love to us in sending his son to set us free. And often there's talk, well, how do I share the gospel? How do I do this? And, and, and it can be overwhelming. I mean, I don't share the gospel every place I go. Maybe 95% of the time or more, I don't. But here's what the One Initiative is, is we want to make intentional in commitments to loving our neighbor well, to loving our family, or just choose one person that you're going to pour into and, and just pray that God would at some point open up an opportunity to share of the greatest news that the world has ever heard, to share why you were blind, but now you see, why you were lost, but now you're found. That's the whole point of it. And so as you're thinking of who is your one, just think of that. Like, don't view it as this big pressure situation. Just view it as who is the one person that I want to pray for, that I want to reach into their lives, that I want to reach and love them well so that Jesus might reveal himself to them. That's why we exist as a church. It's not just for this Sunday morning gathering, but that we would pour into the vulnerable, that we would pour into the hopeless and see Jesus set them free. So if you're in this place this morning, excited you're here, and we, I believe that God's going to show us something incredible this morning as he shows his heart for reaching the vulnerable. And I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get going. God, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive. God, I thank you that you are on the throne, that you are moving and doing things that we cannot do. God, we, we exalt you and lift you high in this place this morning. Have your way. Do your thing, God. Holy Spirit, move in this place and touch hearts in only the way that you can. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're with us and you've been with us for some weeks, we are studying through the Gospel of John. We are now in John chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles and would open to John chapter 8, we're going to start there. But before we get going, I want to take about 5 to 10 minutes to explain something here. Because in every Bible, there is either a bracket or a footnote that says the earliest manuscripts do not include this section. And so maybe you're in this place and you notice that and maybe it scared you or confused you a little bit. But you really didn't know what to do about it. Or maybe you noticed it and didn't care and just kept reading. Or maybe you noticed it and, and researched it a little bit. And so it doesn't really bother you or phase you. But 
I just want to take a couple minutes to explain what this means. And before I do it, I want to read our church's statement on Scripture. And it says this, We accept the Bible, including the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament, as the written word of God. The Bible is an essential and infallible record of God's self-disclosure to mankind. It leads us to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Being given by God, the scriptures are both fully and verbally inspired by God. Therefore, as originally given, the Bible is free of error in all that it teaches. Each book is to be interpreted according to its context and purpose and in reverent obedience to the Lord who speaks through it in living power. All believers are extorted to study the scriptures and diligently apply them to their lives. The scriptures are the authoritative and normative rule and guide all Christian life, practice, and doctrine. They are totally sufficient and must not be added to, superseded, or changed by later tradition, extra-biblical revelation, or worldly wisdom. And then it says this, every doctrinal formation, whether creed, confession, or theology, must be put to the test of the full counsel of the God of God in the Holy Scriptures. So what does that mean? We as the church believe that whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, or any author in Scripture was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to convey the heart of God through the Word of God, and it lacks error. There is no error in Scripture. It is infallible, and it is inerrant. So this is how it worked, how, how this Bible came to be, and I'm going to try to do it in five minutes. See, during this time, there were no copy machines, there were no fax machines, there were no emails, there were no computers. So the way that it would work is they would look at the original manuscripts that were written, and they would begin to handwrite copies of the original manuscript. So there was copies of the original manuscript, and then they made more copies of those copies and more copies of those copies, but they were all handwritten. For instance, the Gospel of John, the, the, it was written in the original manuscript, and as these copies were made of the original, they were dispersed around the area because as the Word of God was being read, people wanted it. They wanted it, they needed it because it was life, it was hope, it was the Gospel. And so men began to make copies and copies and copies and disperse it around the area. In fact, today there are only 11 fragments of the original manuscripts left. There's no full copies of the originals, but we have many copies of the original. So they took the original, they made copies of the original, and this began to be copied. In comes what we call textual criticism. This is the discipline of attempting to determine the original wording of a document when the original document doesn't exist. So how does it work? They took all the copies that were placed all over the place, and they began to compare them, and they began to look at them and see what, is, what are all the copies saying that came from the original manuscripts, and they began to compare them. See, there was this sheer large number of manuscripts, and when you compare the amount of manuscript data from the New Testament with the data provided for the average Greco-Roman author, there is no comparison. I think we have this quote by Daniel B. Wallace, and he says this, the average classical author's literary remains number more, no more than 20 copies, 
We have more than a thousand times the manuscript data for the New Testament than we do for the average Greco-Roman author. So what is that saying? For all the authors in this time, we, the most that we have is 20 from any of these authors. Right now, we have over 5,800 copies of the New Testament based upon the original manuscript. 5,800 copies. It blows everything else away. The, the next closest to the New Testament is this, and this is amazing. There's 10 existing manuscripts of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, which were composed about 58 to 50 BC. This is the most. There's 20 manuscripts of Livy's Roman history that was written at the time of Jesus. And there are only eight manuscripts for the history of Thutides, which was 460 to 400 BC. Only eight. So the most that we have of any Greco-Roman author is 20, and we have 5,800 copies of the New Testament. With all that to say, the abundance of this can create both problems and solutions. It can be problems in that you can look at it, and because they were hand-copied, there are some differences. There are some differences in how they were recorded, but all they were really were spelling or some word changes. So very minor. So how this works is the solution is, if you take all of these copies and you put them side by side, the textual criticism is we look at these copies and we can see what the original manuscript said because there is so much booming evidence with so many copies that we can now see what the text was saying. Think of it like this. It's Super Bowl Sunday. In 2014, the Seahawks beat the Broncos 43 to 8. So if I were to write that in my journal in 2014, that the Seahawks beat the Broncos, and I put that in my journal, and Luke had a journal, and he said, no, actually the Broncos beat the Seahawks. And those were the only two journals we have. No one would know what was true. Because I said the Seahawks won. Luke said the Broncos won. Who won? But if Luke and 15 other people or if me and 15 other people wrote the Seahawks beat the Broncos 43 to 8, and Luke was the only one that said the Broncos beat the Seahawks, we would have a pretty good idea who won the Seahawks because there is overwhelming evidence on my account. It's the same thing with the New Testament manuscripts. Overwhelming evidence for what the original manuscript said. And it's the same thing with this copy of the text that we're going to see this morning. It's in the copies. It's not in the original. We don't have the original, but it's in various copies. One more quote I want to say is from F.F. F. Bruce, and I think we have this. See, because we have more recordings, the variations correct themselves. And he says this, if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is what? In truth, remarkably small. See, it's important that we understand this, and I don't want to just bypass by it and say, oh, just believe me, like, it wasn't in the original, but it should be in here. No, there, there's overwhelming evidence from the copies that were made that this text belongs. 
So we do not have the original, but we do have tremendous amounts of copies of the original text. So what does this mean? It means exactly what it says in here, that this story did, was not included that we know of in the original manuscripts. It did not show up until about 400 years after Christ, but... It was in manuscripts, and scribes believe that there, there's many partial manuscripts that they believe came out of these, and it is historically documented also with Jewish historians that this exact same thing, this story took place. So I want you to see that our stance on Scripture is that this belongs in here, that Scripture is without error, it is, it is sufficient and there is overwhelming evidence for this text, although it was not in the original, it was in the numerous copies of the original. So just so we're on the same page, I want you guys to understand that. So as we move forward, this text was inspired by Almighty God. The Holy Spirit of God has infused this text. And what we are going to see, it is dripping with the gospel. Dripping with the gospel. In fact, if we look at it, it's his, it, it is a historically accurate document that carries the same character, tone, words, and actions of Jesus, clearly conveying the gospel, therefore it must not be dismissed. This is the word of God. See, in it we're going to see the scribes and the Pharisees that really seek to trap Jesus so that they might have charges against him, and they're going to use this vulnerable woman to do it. And what we're going to see is Jesus' response of this perfect balance of law and grace, truth and love. We're going to see the these religious leaders being exposed for their hypocrisy, yet at the same time, we're going to see Jesus giving grace to the sinner. This text is dripping with the gospel. And God is going to use it in this place to set some people free. He's going to use it in this place like he did in my heart this week to show me that God fights for the vulnerable. That God does not condemn his people. That he fights for his people to set them free. And it's amazing. It truly is Amazing. So how do we know that this passage is dripping with the gospel because it reveals this? Not a God who condemns you in your sin, but a God who redeems you from it. This is the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel. So John chapter 7, starting in verse 53 and then into chapter 8, says this. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives Early in the morning, he came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. See, at this time, you guys will be glad to know that actually the teacher usually sat, and a lot of times you guys would be standing. So you're welcome that you can sit in your comfortable chairs while I stand up here for 40 minutes. But that's how it worked in this time was Jesus was sitting down, and he was teaching them. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, he, he commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? 
Already we have a problem because the law did not command that they stone such women. It actually commanded that they stone both man and woman, both who were involved. We see it in Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 20 that, that if anyone was caught in adultery, it was not just the woman who was to be stoned, or as this text says, the women, it was the man and the woman. Both culprits were to be stoned for this act of adultery. And these scribes, these Pharisees, these religious leaders come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, you know what the law says. Women are supposed to be stoned. See, this poor woman, she was being used by the scribes and the Pharisees, by the religious leaders of the time. She was being used to push their agenda to try to trap Jesus. It had nothing to do with this woman. Otherwise, they would have brought the man with her. It had nothing to do with prosecuting the sin. It had everything to do with trying to trap this self-proclaimed, this prophesied king, this coming Jesus who had come and was preaching the gospel and was preaching the repentance of sin. See, that is why they came. They were trying to trap him and put him into a corner. Verse 6, this they said to test him that they might have some charges to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And by the way, no one knows what Jesus wrote on the ground. There's lots of speculation. There's lots of people saying, oh, well, it could have been this text from the Old Testament, or maybe Jesus wrote, you name it. I mean, look, look no one knows. If Scripture wanted us to know, it would, he, God would have revealed it. So apparently, whatever Jesus wrote on the ground was not important to convey the gospel in this text. We don't know. So if anyone tells you they know, they don't know. They don't because God has not revealed it to us. But he says this, he wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. See, it is also in the Old Testament law that the person who caught someone in the act was the one that was supposed to throw the stone, was the one that was supposed to stone the victim. Jesus is saying, if you're without sin, you throw the first stone. Here come these religious leaders of the time coming before Jesus and saying, Jesus, here's this woman. She's caught in adultery. Jesus, knowing their heart, knowing their agenda, looks at them and said, if you're without sin, throw the first stone. Go for it. If you've never sinned, throw the first stone. In verse 8, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. This is interesting because at this time, to prosecute this woman, there needed to be two or three witnesses that testified against her. One would not suffice. So all of a sudden, this woman who is caught in adultery has no one to testify of her sin. Because of Jesus' statement, all the witnesses have walked away. And Jesus is left alone, Jesus with this woman, one-on-one -on -one with this woman. And what is about to transpire is jaw-dropping. It's stunning. 
one by one, the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with this woman standing before him in verse 10. Jesus stood up, and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you, she said? No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. This word literally can mean, Neither do I pass judgment on you. Go and sin no more. I can just see Jesus as he stands up and he looks at this woman, probably tears, stained face, fear in her eyes, reaching down to this woman and just picking up her chin and just looking at this woman with an insurmountable amount of love. I'm sure she's scared to death. I'm sure she's thinking, I'm about to be stoned for the sin that I committed, feeling this deep, deep shame, feeling this feeling of being worthless, an adulterer, a harlot, a feeling of utter hopelessness. This woman is sitting there, and Jesus looks at her and says, where are they? Oh, there's no one here to condemn you? Neither do I. Jesus, knowing who she was in her sin, knowing she had committed this act of adultery, looks at this woman and probably stuns her. This amount of love we cannot comprehend. Yet this is the God that we serve. He was not condemning her, but redeeming and restoring. We saw this in John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved through him. Same thing. He looks at this woman and he says, you know what? I see you in your sin. I see you in your brokenness. I see you in your hurt. I see you in your pain. I see you in your struggle. And I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is the heart of a mighty God, a God who has come to atone for the sins of mankind. Think about it. Here is Jesus, the king of glory, the standard of perfection, looking at this sinful woman, knowing her sin, knowing her past, knowing her fear, her struggle, her brokenness, her shame, maybe her regret, and he holds none of it against her. None of it. He looks at her and just says, neither do I condemn you, but then he says this, go and sin no more. Like, don't dwell in the sin that, I'm, that, I, that I have forgiven you. Go and, 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 and trust me to work within you. He doesn't make an excuse for her sin. He li literally just says, I don't condemn you for your sin. I have come to set you free. He doesn't minimize sin. Don't, don't think that sin is minimized. Sin is the reason that Jesus had to come. Because I was a sinner. I was condemned to death. Yet he chose to enter this world so that I might be given life, so I might be given freedom and hope that I might bow my knee to him, not as just Savior, but as Lord, that he might restore me, 
See, sin is not to be minimized, but the heart of God is he defeats sin. He conquers sin to set the captive free. This is stunning. See, where the scribes and Pharisees sought to condemn her, Jesus chose to redeem and restore her. He chose to set her free. He didn't look at her with judgment, anger, and disdain. He looked at her with love, compassion, and kindness, a kindness that led to repentance. Romans 2.4 says this, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. See, this is the beautiful thing about God is his heart is for his people. His kindness is so that we might reach repentance, that we might be set free. There is no freedom without repentance. The two have to work together. We have to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus, and he will set us free. But it's his kindness that leads to repentance. See, do you know that this is the heart of God? When the world or the enemy seeks to condemn you, he desires to redeem you, restore you, and set you free. You know the beautiful thing about God is that when he looks at me, when he looks at my life, he does not see my sin. He sees the blood of his son washed all over it. He doesn't see me for my past. He doesn't see me for my struggle. He doesn't see me for the, the ways that, that I struggle even now. Because I'm blood-bought by the king, he sees the blood of Jesus washed over my life, and this is freedom. This is the heart of God. He doesn't seek to condemn his people. He seeks to set his people free. Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. See to it that you're no longer bound by the yoke of slavery. See, if you are in Jesus, God doesn't see you in light of your sin, your shortcomings, your failures, those things that the enemy seeks to label you with. He sees you as redeemed and set free by the sacrifice of his son. But that's only if you are in Christ. See, the scripture also says in John chapter 3 that, that we stand condemned already if we refuse to believe in the name of Jesus. See, Jesus is saying he did not come to condemn, but rather we were already condemned and we stand condemned if we don't believe upon Jesus. Jesus is saying, just come to me, believe me for who I am, accept my offer of life, and I will set you free. But if you refuse me, you stand condemned. He's not condemning you. You are already condemned. But then Jesus says, I don't condemn my people. I set them free. Think about that, the weight of that, the power of that, that Jesus redeems and restores those who will call upon his name. See, God's heart is not to condemn us in our sin. It's to redeem us and set us free from it. And don't miss it. I've been thinking about this week. I am this woman. I have sinned against God. I have lusted in my heart, according to God, that is adultery. But because I am purchased by his blood, he does not see me as an adulterer. He sees me as a son. That is the beauty of the gospel. He didn't see this woman as an adulterer. 
He didn't condemn this woman in her sin. He said, go and sin no more, for I do not condemn you. This is the power and the beauty of the gospel. So don't just read this text and say, well, I'm not an adulterer. I haven't been unfaithful to my wife. According to Jesus, if you've lusted in your heart, then you are. But the amazing thing is, Jesus treats you the exact same way. It doesn't matter how far you run. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the shame or the guilt that you feel. If you will come to him, he will set you free. And he will give you more life than your heart and your soul can contain. It's beauty. But then we can also be like the scribes and the Pharisees, and we often seek to condemn or pass judgment on those around us, neglecting our own shortcomings to find them in others. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. Looking at just saying, well, this woman did this, so I'm going to use this woman in her vulnerable state to do my, what I want to do with Jesus, and we can do the exact same thing. This is often to make us feel better about ourselves or mask or often just this mask for our own emptiness and pain. See, the Pharisees came with an agenda to expose this woman at her expense, yet the words of Jesus they left under the conviction of their own sin. See, we must continually remember that we are that woman, and it causes us to look at people the way that God does. If we can view ourselves as this woman, all of a sudden, my condemnation, my judgment, my seeing the world through my own lens and saying, man, look at so-and-so. Can you believe that they did that? Rather, it becomes, man, Luke, look at yourself. Look at the weight by which you've been forgiven. Look at the weight by which you've been redeemed. And it changes how you see the world. And it changes how you see people. See, we're often quick to justify our own actions at the expense of the vulnerable. But the vulnerable are the very people that Jesus fights for. Did you know that no one is without hope? No one is too far gone. No one is too entrenched in sin. No one is unredeemable, and no one can run too far. Why? Because Jesus pursues the vulnerable. He restores the brokenhearted. He makes clean the adulterer. He loves the unlovable. And he comes to set them free. This is the beauty of the gospel. In 1975, there was this man by the name of Bernie Carbo. He played for the Red Sox. They were playing the Cincinnati Reds, and the count was two to two in the eighth inning, and there's two men on base, and Bernie steps up to bat, and he says, man, like, this was my moment. If I could hit a home run, I would tie the game, and the series could continue. It was game six. So he steps up to the plate, and he said the pitcher throws him a fastball, and he smacks it over the center field fence. He said these emotions were just running through his mind, like, can you believe it? Like, I just hit... It, I cracked it over the center field fence. In the middle of the World Series, everyone is going to look at me and look at my glory and give me what I deserve. And he said that only lasted for a short moment because he said as he began to think, he thought, man, I'm broken. He was addicted to drugs. In fact, he said he did drugs prior to the game. 
He said he was totally miserable. He said, although he just hit a home run in the World Series, game six, to extend the series, he said deep down he was completely and utterly miserable. Well, he thought this would be the defining moment of his life. He said when it came down to it, he was more miserable than when he started. He said he was dealing with some deep insecurities. He didn't know if his father loved him, but he couldn't stop trying to seek his approval. His marriage was shaky at best. He said he'd spent the next few years after that bouncing around to different teams, and finally his career ended, and he didn't know what to do with his life. So he moved back to his home state of Michigan and went to cosmetology school and opened up his own hair salon. And he said he did that for eight years while he continued to be entrenched in sin. And he, he said he gave himself to more and more drugs and he couldn't contain it. He said it was just like a downhill spiral. And then the unthinkable happened. A prominent baseball player outed him for introducing him to cocaine. He said his mother saw this on a national stage and it so deeply wounded her that like a year later, she took her own life. He said he didn't know if it was because of him or his father. All he knew was he felt the guilt. He felt the shame. He felt if this is all because of me, my mom has taken her own life because of me. He blamed himself and his father died three months later. So here's a man who was at the highest of highs now he's struggling to live. He doesn't want to live. He's lost his mother. He's been outed for introducing players to cocaine. He's lost his father. So him and his wife moved to Florida, and he was going to pursue a senior professional baseball career, which I actually didn't even know it existed, but apparently it did. I don't, maybe it still does, but in 1975 it did. So him and his wife moved to Florida. He was still hooked on drugs, and he woke up one day, and he said, i got to change something. He said, if I don't change this will kill me. So he said he went to his wife and shared that with her, and he said she looked at her and said, well, I want the drugs more than you. So his marriage ended. So now his mother has died, his father has died, his marriage is over. And while he said he was going to stop using, he continued to use. A year later, he remarried and was divorced in another year. And it just continued to spiral And then there came a day where he met with another major leaguer by the name of Dalton Jones, and he was in a swimming pool, and Dalton began to share the difference that Jesus could make, the hope that he could offer for even a sinner like him. And he said he prayed that day and believed Jesus began to work in his heart, but he continued to use drugs to the point of losing all hope. And he says, I felt like I tried everything, and I was worthless. He said, I prayed a prayer, but I still felt worthless. Then the phone rang, and an old teammate from the Red Sox called him, and at this time, he was thinking about taking his own life. He said, his friend called and said, my daughter has just passed away. And he said, the only thing that kept him from taking his life that night was he didn't have the heart to tell his friend that he was thinking about committing suicide because his friend had called to share with him that his daughter had passed away. But somehow, his friend felt something was wrong, and... Soon he was admitted into a rehab facility. He said immediately it didn't work out. He had a panic attack, and he was sent to the hospital in Tampa. And lo and behold, he ended up in a hotel room right next to a retired pastor. 
So here is God trying to get a hold of him again. He said he taught him about the true healing Jesus could offer. And on the way home, Bernie said he got a call from a friend that said, hey, I'm thinking about starting this ministry to use baseball to preach the gospel. So he started this ministry called the Diamond Club Ministry. See, Jesus had done something in his life. He began to heal him, and he started this ministry. But then yet again in 1994, he had another relapse. And drugs began to infiltrate his life. But it was in this time that he met Tammy, the next the woman who would finally become his wife. And after that final relapse, Jesus finally got a hold of him, and he was set free. But I want you to hear what he said. He said this about his wife. She reminded me about Jesus and the atonement for sins that he accomplished through the death on the cross. And I believed once more that his blood was sufficient to cover all of my transgressions and that he and that we could depend on him for the grace that we need to overcome the strongholds of addiction or any habitual sin. And then he said this, not only does Jesus offer a way out, but he also offers a way into a life more joyful and abundant than anyone could imagine. Bernie was this woman, entrenched in sin, in shame, in guilt, in hopelessness, with no peace, his life spiraling out of control, but he saw this Jesus, the king who has come, that did not come to condemn him, but to set him free, and it gave him life. This is the power of the gospel, and may you never lose sight of it. See, if you're in this room this morning and you don't know this Jesus, The reason that I got up this morning to stand on this stage is to share with you of a God, to share with you of a God who can set you free. No matter how hopeless you feel, no matter how vulnerable you are, no matter how depressed you are or depraved or caught and entrenched in sin, Jesus has come to offer you life. And all you have to do, think about it, it's so... Like, the amazing thing about the gospel is it's so simple that even a child can understand. And it's this, God, I know that I need help. God, I know that I cannot do this on my own. God, I believe that you came and lived a sinless life, that you hung on a cross, that you were buried in the grave, and on the third day you walked out of it to set me free. God, I believe that you are who you said you are, and I will turn from my sin and I will turn to you. God, set me free. There's no magic prayer. There's no magic words. Cry out to this God. Cry out to this king, and he will set you free. He says the same thing. Who's your accuser? The enemy can't accuse you. The world can't accuse you. Who's accusing you? He's saying, who's accusing you? Oh, no one? Oh, the enemy's trying to accuse you, but the problem is his accusations hold no weight in in comparison to my blood, in comparison to what I have done. It holds no weight, so really his accusations don't matter. Come to me. Why? Because I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
this is the power of the gospel, that Jesus has come to set you free. See, you're going to fall short. Even after you're saved, I do every day. You're going to fall. You're going to mess up. You're going to do things you regret. You're going to parent in ways that you wish you hadn't. You're going to say things that you wish you could take back. But if you are in Christ, you don't live condemned, but free and redeemed. And I hope that that causes something to stir inside of you like, oh my goodness, how can I comprehend such a love? How can I comprehend such a God that would come to offer me life? It's free to you this morning. And if you're saved this morning, please hear this, that we are not to live under this weight of shame and guilt and condemnation. Because Jesus has atoned for it all. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That we are to live as freed people. See, there's a difference in conviction and condemnation. Conviction is a beautiful thing. Conviction brings us to this place where we realize our sin, we realize our need for a Savior, and we come to him and say, God, I can't do it on my own. Condemnation is nothing but the enemy beating you over the head with a two-by-four saying, how dare you do that? How dare you mess up again? How dare you treat your son that way? How dare you treat your wife that way? And Jesus comes on the scene, and he looks at you as you're beaten and bruised, as your face is stained, as you're depressed and hopeless and he picks your chin and he looks at you with an insurmountable amount of love and says, Who's, where's your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is freedom. And God has offered it to every person in this room this morning. If you do not know him, I pray that today is the day that changes the rest of your life. And while it will be difficult, and while you will still struggle, and while you will still fall, Jesus is there to catch you and not condemn you, but restore you. This is power. There is no greater news on planet Earth than this. And this is why this text is dripping with the gospel. And this is why this text was inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit and without error, because it is dripping with the gospel. See, Jesus looks at you with the same compassion he had for this woman. The love of God is not condemning, it is redeeming. God, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you that you are so good that as I sit here and I struggle and I fall and I fall short, God, and as I don't measure up and as I, I don't meet your standard, God, that you just pick my chin even with tears in my eyes and my face stained with hurt. And you look at me with a love that pierces even the, the toughest of souls. And you look at me and you say, Luke, where are your accusers? Because I do not condemn you. Just go and sin no more. And God, as I've been pondering this this week, it has radically wrecked me that I am this woman 
That I am this woman that has run from you, that I am this woman who has done everything who is, that is against you, God, but in your love you have drawn me in, in your love you have drawn me near, and you have restored and redeemed. So God, I pray in this place this morning by the power of your spirit that you would fall in this place in a way that I cannot, God, in a way that my words cannot. Holy Spirit, would you move in this room, in this time, and in this place, and would you show each person in this room that you pursue them, that you fight for them, and that they can come to you with anything. They can come to you with hurt. They can come to you with pain. They can come to you with hopelessness. They can come to you with depression and addiction and shame. And if they will come to you, you will pick their face and you will look them in the eyes and say, I have come to restore and redeem. So God, for the person maybe that's in this room that does not know you, in this moment, would you draw them to yourself, God? No one comes to the Son unless the Father draws. Holy Spirit, would you begin to move? Would you set the captive free? Would you give those who are bound in bondage freedom? And may they see the goodness of a mighty king, a mighty God, a mighty savior who has come to set them free, not to condemn them, but to restore them and redeem them. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name.